when you look back at it, it was something that they were kind of holding and and recreating in their in their life because they weren't aware that it existed. But ketamine opens those those vaulted memories really well. And that's why in psychotherapy, using the ketamine, a really good psychotherapist can help people to navigate that and draw out those areas that they have not been aware that they actually experienced. All right, folks, we are continuing to rock and roll here in 2022. Welcome back to the Life Stylist Podcast. My name is Luke Story, and you can find out just about everything you'd want to know about me on my website, lukestory.com. And for those of you that want to find clickable links and complete transcripts for the episode you're about to listen to, you can find those at lukestory.com slash stickler, S-T-I-C-K-L-E-R, lukestory.com slash stickler. Today's sponsors are Eaton Hemp, Organifi, Mitopure, and Juve. We'll talk about them a bit later. Before I forget to remind you, I've officially launched my first and very own blue blocking eyewear brand. I took all the years I spent in Hollywood as a biohacking fashion stylist, put those two skills together, and created a super cool and scientifically valid line of glasses. We've got daytime lenses that are yellow for times when you're working indoors behind glass or on devices. And then, of course, the amber color lenses for nighttime to ensure that your melatonin, sleep, and mood is protected. We've also got readers, prescription, and regular glasses. You can find them at gildedbylukestory.com. That's G-I-L-D-E-D, gildedbylukestory.com. You can also likely just click on the link for Gilded in your show notes, and you'll be taken right to the site. Okay, our guest is Dr. Daniel Stickler. He is the medical director for the Neurohacker Collective and the co-founder and chief medical officer of the Aperion Center for Human Potential here in Austin, Texas. He's also truly one of the most brilliant guests with whom I've had the pleasure of chatting. His knowledge of consciousness and brain function is truly unparalleled. He's just an incredibly knowledgeable guy. And I've been sitting on this one for a while, trying to find the right slot in the calendar on which to release it, and today is the perfect day. Here's a rough outline of the map we followed in this conversation. Dr. Dan's path to optimization medicine. We also discuss all things mental performance, focus, memory, and creativity, and how nootropics and peptides can help improve brain function. The most common root cause of cognitive issues. Then he breaks down the term nootropic and talks about how it differs from smart drugs. The benefits of adding nootropics into your health optimization routine. The rarely talked about history of these substances now called nootropics. The synergistic benefits of taking a nootropic stack like Qualia Mind as opposed to just taking individual nootropics. We also do a deep dive on the rarest and most impactful of the 28 ingredients in Qualia Mind. Then we geek out on methylene blue, racetams, nupept, CoQ10, and lithium orotate. And Dan also shares how mitochondrial health is crucial for optimal brain function and the real deal on microdosing, LSD, and psilocybin. In addition to Dan's innovative and very curious work using neurofeedback combined with ketamine. And finally, we cover one of my favorite topics these days, peptides. And I'll let you know if you want to try my very favorite brain nootropic formula, Qualia, which Dr. Dan helped formulate, you can go to neurohacker.com and use the code LUKE to save 15% off everything. That's neurohacker.com 
and the code there is Luke for 15% off. Okay, let's roll up our sleeves and prepare to take it to the next level with the outlandishly brilliant mind of Dr. Dan Stickler. Good to see you, Dan. You too. Yeah, man. So I'm glad we got to do this one in person. Yeah, both both awesome nights. Live in the flesh. Yeah, our last one was a couple of years ago. I want to say maybe even three years ago or something. 2017. And we did it on uh, Skype, which is never my preference. So I'm glad to see you here. And I'm so glad you live in Austin. We have so many mutual friends in the community here. And I was stoked to be able to connect. Yeah, I I was surprised when he reached out and you were here in Austin. I was just like, no, wow. Everybody's in Austin now. We kind of are. We kind of are. I always tell people that come here from places like California, let's not vote this place into another California. Please don't. Yeah, I voted the other day, and (laughs) I I think I did pretty good. I did a little research, and I think I made some good choices. I don't know if it mattered, but... uh, Yeah, you made a choice. Yeah, one proposition that I did not get to vote for uh, that I wanted to passed uh, in my favor, and so I guess they did it without me. Uh, so I guess let's start at the beginning, you know, what led you into optimization medicine? I know you've been through, you know, a few iterations through the functional medicine movement and some other things. Mm-hmm. Give us a bit of a truncated journey that led you to the cutting edge stuff you're into now. And um, quick story is got into medical school, didn't really resonate with the disease model and pharmacology of things. And, um, really thought medicine should be something about enhancing the human state, enhancing well-being in general, and uh, and also work with disease model, but not disease model solely, and that's what it's turned out to be. And so with that disenchantment, I'm looking at it, I'm like, what am I going to do? This isn't what I really signed up for. Um, but I did find surgery, which I enjoyed. I loved the working with my hands. Um, I'm kind of ambidextrous, so working in surgery, especially laparoscopic surgery, it's great. I had a great time with it and started doing weight loss surgery because I could take people from a baseline of quality of life and bring them up, which everything else in medicine is a stepwise postponement of death, essentially. And um, did that for several years, but then discovered uh, something called age management medicine. And that introduced me to a world that I had longed for, but hadn't known where you could actually work with healthy people and help them to, to have more well-being in their life. And that was where it all started. And that was in 2005. By 2009, I decided I didn't want to do surgery anymore, so I walked away from that and uh, focused solely on growing this aspect of what we were doing because it was kind of a hobby at first. But it has just changes all the time, you know, all the new stuff coming. And I mean, I was given a talk for Paleo FX and I spoke in there and it was 2014 and I talked about age rejuvenation and all these technologies that were coming. And I gave the talk again this year and it was like, okay, these are the technologies we're now using in our clients. And it was just, it was like, you know, that, premonition based on the theories back then that all kind of came into fruition in the course of, you know, five, six years. Yeah. We're really living in a very cool time yeah. with renegades like you out there <laughs> leading the charge seriously. Cause I remember even years ago um, when I discovered that there was this other branch of medicine, they call functional medicine or working with naturopaths, et cetera. 
And that's benefited me a lot because you can go get labs and then you can essentially, you know, you're replacing pharmaceuticals with supplementation typically. But still within that, I find it a little bit lacking because you're still averaging yourself against the average person. Right. And the life that I lead does not, uh, you know, settle for just being average. So what is optimal then, you know, is not optimal is kind of an individual thing, right? Right. So you can look at a set of labs and, well, this is kind of where the average person is. And maybe this is optimal for those people, but what's optimal for you right? as an individual biological organism. So I think what we're doing right now is getting closer to that. But, you know, I went down the, the road of functional medicine thinking that was the, the way to go for me because it was, in theory, it sounded great, but I uh, found a lot of functional medicine still focused on the disease and they just treated it differently. They treated it with more natural products, um, more uh, actually some more lifestyle stuff, which I like. But, um, you know, it was it was still a focus on that. It wasn't focused on optimization. It's, and, you know, they're all big on the root cause and understanding uh, systems the human system is not a reductionistic system. So there's never a root cause. And when you look at it, you have to say, okay, what, what kind of system is it? It's a complex system. And to analyze a complex system, it's more of recognizing patterns and, um, and seeing what happens as a, um, instead of cause and effect, you're looking at, um, patterns and evolution with with it what does it end up causing in that regard but not a direct cause and effect just all these things contributing to give one outcome this is you know it's a perfect segue into the brain because it's how the brain works you know where everybody's looking for the one thing that's going to give them that limitless pill and it just it doesn't exist you, you're not going to have the one thing that's going to to get everybody there People will come to me and they're like looking for cognitive enhancement. We have all kinds of tools for it, but then they don't want to make the effort to to get good sleep. They don't want to have good nutrition. <laughs> they don't make an effort to have these. And without those, without that foundation and those contributing to the outcome, not one, not any of the enhancements are going to make much of a difference for them. I've heard you talk about when people come to your clinic and they have some pathology of some sort that you won't even allow them to continue to contextualize it in a way. I have diabetes, I have whatever. Mm -hmm. What's your position on that? Could you explain that a bit more into the systems approach? Yeah, we get, we get stuck on titles when, when we're going through life and we assume the role of that title. You know, when you're a son or a father or a brother or a doctor, you, you kind of embody what that role means to you. And when people are given diagnoses, that's a label that they get. So when they say you have diabetes, and the truth of the matter is diabetes isn't actually a disease when we, the way we actually think of a disease. And I mean, it's a, it's a spectrum of insulin resistance that's gotten to the point where it requires medication. So to get them off of the idea that they have a disease, then we just say, you know, you've got pretty severe insulin resistance due to lifestyle factors. And here's how we're going to go about correcting that. 
and we give them that path and the fact that they're no longer thinking that they're diabetic, they actually resolve it. If they continue to hold on to those descriptors and titles, then I know I'm going to have a lot of difficulty getting them to the uh, finish line on that. I see that a lot with people that have something serious going on where they become sort of psychologically identified with that label. You know, like it's not even like I have autoimmune or I have Lyme or lupus or whatever. It's like they could almost say like, that's what I am. Right. Right. So on that subconscious level, I'm assuming it's much harder to get someone past that when that's, you know, they've suffered so much under it that it becomes part of their identity, right? Yes. Yeah. So then it's not only you're trying to optimize someone or heal someone, but then there's the psychological element where you have to sort of detach them from their identification as the person who has X, Y, or Z, right? How do you work with people to overcome that psychological part? I mean, do they just kind of go along with your paradigm because they really want to work with you and they want to you know, be treated in your clinic or do you meet some resistance where people are like clutching on to that label because that's essentially what they've become. Yeah. Um, generally with, with disease diagnosis, we're, we're pretty good at showing them the science of what's going on. You know, here's, here's the progression of how you became diabetic, which is just on the spectrum of insulin resistance. Uh, you know, Type 1 diabetes can be considered a disease because they're missing the, the beta cells. There's nothing physiologically really missing from uh, type 2 diabetic, just that their, their insulin sensitivity isn't there. So we just tell them, this is, the, this is a descriptor of what you have, not a title of what you have. So this is what's going on. This is what we're going to correct. Um, the, the time we have the biggest problem is in, in victim uh, mentality. So when people become victims of whatever they have going on, you know, they'll come in with mold or Lyme and they, they just assume this, this victim role and, and they need that for their identity. I saw this in gastric bypass um, patients that I worked with where they would lose the weight and they would think that they're going to have this perfect life because the weight was the whole reason that you know, they, their husband didn't like them or their, um, their boss didn't like uh, this person. And yet they lose the weight and they find the same thing exists still yet. And they've lost the excuse rather than looking more at, you know, what, what is it else that is, that is potentially wrong with that person or with me that's causing this. It's got to be the weight. So they'll sabotage themselves and they'll gain the weight back so that they now have that, that protection again. And that's a hard one to break from people. Um, we used to work with, uh, we had health psychologists on our staff that would work with them. And now in our clinic, we have performance psychologists that really work with getting them out of that, those mind loops. And, and the, the victim is, is hard though. So we, we typically kind of stay away from from taking clients that are they're in that mindset because it takes a lot of work and that's uh, it interferes with our ability to optimize.
By now, you've probably tried a CBD product or two, or three or four, I know I have. The thing is, there's a lot of shadiness in the hemp industry, so it's hard to find a brand you can trust, and even harder to find CBD that gives you results. So I was pumped when I found Eaton Hemp. Not only does their CBD deliver the calming benefits I'm looking for, but it's also organically grown. The organic piece is really important because when hemp grows, it sucks up all the nutrients from the soil. That means it also sucks up all the toxins, heavy metals, pesticides, and anything else in the soil that you don't necessarily want in your body. Eaton Hemp CBD is also minimally processed and infused in their own organic hemp seed oil grown on their farm in upstate New York. This creates a whole plant, unfiltered, and full-spectrum CBD product. The CBD industry is all about trust. With so many brands out there just slapping labels on products, it's important to know where your products come from, and that's why I love eating hemp. They've even gone so far to throw a QR code on every bottle where you can scan and get full access to lab and terpenes reports. I love that, especially in a hemp product. If you're ready to get all the goodness of a full-spectrum CBD, jump on over to eatonhemp.com and use the code LUKE for 20% off. That's E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P, eatonhemp.com. And again, the code is LUKE. Because along with that, victim mentality is going to, I'm assuming, come with uh, the blame. Right. Yeah. And then you have kind of a double-edged sword of resistance because you have someone who is in their perpetuity of victimhood, but also that needs to be expressed somewhere. So it's like, well, it's Monsanto or you know, whatever, right? Whatever they could point it to. And there's there's a lot of perpetrators out there that we could all blame, but it doesn't really get you into the solution mindset. It's like, I think for any of us that have experienced trauma, for example, you know, there's the initial acknowledgement of the trauma, looking into it, facing it, doing shadow work by however one does it. Mm -hmm. But within that, there also has to be, uh, in my experience, at least subjectively, a release of the resentment and the blame associated with what led one to be victimized in the first place. Right. Right. Because you're still kind of putting your energy on the problem rather than on the infinite potential of solution. So that's, uh, that's a really great distinction. So when it comes to what I want to focus on here, which is mental performance Mm -hmm. and and vocal performance, um, you know, when we think of brain optimization, what are different categories by which you define, you know, a properly working brain that's firing on all cylinders and is going to allow someone to really have a better quality of life? What are the metrics that you're kind of looking for there? Well, first and foremost, there's, there's not a perfect brain. You know, it's just like, is there a perfect diet? There's not a perfect diet. There's a perfect diet for you uh, at certain points in your life and certain goals that you have in mind. But the same thing with the brain. Um, You have inputs that you can use, uh, supplements, medications that can alter neurochemical um, processes in the brain. That's one of the ways you can enhance that. Another... uh, popular way that's really gaining a lot of traction is external stimulation or neurofeedback. Um, we prefer the neurostimulation. We progressed, we used to use neurofeedback, but we found neurostimulation was uh, quite effective um, in achieving. And, and when we look at a brain, one thing I will, will tell people is when we do a brain map, so we do a brain map on all of our clients and it's compared 
to a normative database and it tells you, you know, okay, this, these are areas that are outside of the normal range and these are areas that are outside of the normal range, either above or below. And, and they look at it and they're like, whoa, that's, that doesn't look good. Well, you're being compared to a normal brain. This is average. And none of the people I work with are average people. So if they would test as a look normal on these things, I'd worry more so than anything else. Right. Um, so what we do is we look at it and we also have them do cognitive testing. So we see what their performance metrics are as well. And then we compare it to the brainwave patterns and we say, you know, is this pattern supporting what they're working towards, what they're um, working um, kind of cognitive function needs a focus like an engineer you want that more analytical aspect and and they're going to be way off of normal on the baseline and it's not something you want to correct now, there's a big problem with a lot of the neurofeedback clinics is they base it on these normal brains and they don't really pay attention to oh well, wait a second this is this person's gift this is what's actually making them exceptional uh, but what we look at is okay are there areas that you're desiring to have better performance in that we're seeing subpar performance in the brain. And then we say, okay, well, can we stimulate in a new wave pattern into that area? Or they'll have an area that's disruptive to them. Uh, like they're not able to pay attention. They're not able to sleep, whatever it is. And we can see if we can correlate that with a brainwave pattern, then we can use neurostimulation to actually program it out of the brain. And we never do things just single modality. So when we do um, brain stimulation work, we will um, give them some kind of a kind of a baseline cognitive performance like quality of mind. We like that because it's a it's a good general uh, foundational brain performance uh, supplement. But then when they come in to do the uh, brain stimulation will give them some oxytocin and then uh, two sprays of ketamine, typically. And what the ketamine does is it activates this um, neuroplasticity, this ability to learn these patterns very quickly. And we started using it about a year and a half ago, and we saw our ability to create new patterns in the brain, just go exponential in very short periods of time. And now we can do just typically 10, 20 minute sessions of brain stimulation. We can get a whole new pattern established. Whereas neurofeedback, it used to take us 40, 50 sessions of you know, 40 minutes each where they had to stare at the screen and fly the plane. With this one, what we do is we set up um, breath pacing with them. And so they're, they're breathing according to the breath pacing while the brain's being stimulated. So we were taking care of a lot of things all at once and it's all ingraining in them with the, the different things that we use. That is so cool. I've done a lot of neurofeedback over the years and I, and I enjoy it and I've definitely seen benefits from it. Yeah. Uh, especially I went and did the bio-cybernaut training now. So oh, yeah, with Dr. Hard, who I interviewed recently and we did alpha training and, um, I cheated a little bit. I, I, I admitted this to Dr. Art when I did the interview, but you know, you weren't supposed to take any supplements or anything like that. I don't think I had quality of mind with me at that time, 
but I was doing like paracetam and I didn't take my or anything too crazy, but paracetam and some other mild stuff. Um, and I did really well. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was really good at, uh, and I was doing like, you know, MCT and stuff like that, getting yeah. the ketones in. And I was for lack of a better, uh, terminology i was crushing it i mean i was really getting great scores and i think that it benefited me um but it does take a lot of time i mean we were in those chambers for hours and hours and hours and it was time deprivation and you couldn't have your cell phone there's no windows you have no idea how long each each i think they called them an epic you know you had no idea how long each one was and mm-hmm. get out of there at four in the morning and kind of going like what just happened you know but it definitely did improve my life, you know, but yeah. that's really interesting. The, um, the neuroplasticity of the ketamine is a new one for me. I've been hearing some murmurs around microdosing different things and, you know, assisting with the neuroplasticity. And, uh, you know, that's something that is obviously, um, becoming ubiquitous amongst circles like ours, mm-hmm. but the ketamine, that's really interesting because I've experimented with it a bit myself, um, doing meditations, like doing the Joe Dispenza meditations and things mm-hmm. like that. And, have found with, I don't know if it's a microdose because I definitely feel it, but not, I don't think what someone would take recreationally. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know how people do that recreationally because I don't want to recreate anything on ketamine. Like I do not want to move. I, I don't want to open my eyes. You know, I'm just like basically paralyzed, you know, in, yeah. in, in the best way. But I have found that it does open up this quantum gateway for manifestation, visualization, and I sense that something very unique is happening in my brain, but I don't really know what. So that's interesting that you combine that kind of opening uh, with brain chemistry and then added in another input so that you can actually maximize that time spent. That's very interesting. Yeah, we, I mean, we did a lot of reading on the ketamine and then the studies on, um, and they were using larger doses than the studies that were creating all this synaptic neuroplasticity that was uh, pretty amazing. I mean, it, a lot of psychedelics do that. Um, psilocybin is very classic for all of the activations that, that occurs, the cross-linkings in the brain. Um, and there's going to be, as that comes out, I think you're going to see a lot more of that used in the uh, neuroenhancement fields. But the um, the ketamine fascinated us with with that and its ability to do it. So we decided, well, let's let's test it out. And the nasal sprays, I mean, two nasal sprays, most people don't even perceive that they've done anything. Um, there are some people that get pretty trippy on, on two nasal sprays. So um, we, we have to test them out to see what their tolerance level is um, when they when they come in for the training. But I just, I, we couldn't believe, so we would map them before doing the 10 trainings and we did the 10 trainings in a five day period. So twice a day for five days. And in the course of just one week, I mean, we were taking brains that had six standard deviations away from where we wanted them uh, into either normal air in that one particular area or, uh, or just barely above a standard deviation. And it just amazed us that we could do that. And then we would follow them up in three months and, map it again and it's still persistent really wow that's crazy because of the neuroplasticity yeah. effect potentiates the you know the uh longevity of the change yeah wow that's so interesting what a trip what have you ever run a qeg on someone while they're on ketamine yeah 
what kind of brain waves do you see? Does it differ from person to person, or is there sort of a, a uniform effect it'll have typically? Well, I mean, most people are going to respond differently to different things. Um, you just you see a, a major uptick in activity. I mean, there's a lot of activity going on in the brain. It gets very busy in there when they're on the ketamine. Um, you know, ketamine has a, has a really interesting phenomena associated with it. it. It tends to... So most of our thinking is controlled by top-down processing. So the, the bottom-up stuff is coming from more subconscious. And as you come up with these magical ideas or something that, that the more uh, cerebral centers of the brain are going, oh, no, that's not possible. That's, that's not real. Don't pay attention to that unicorn or whatever. Um, it shuts those off. And so it kind of kicks them to the side so you never actually experience them. Ketamine has this really interesting phenomenon. So um, the, the medial prefrontal cortex is, is one of the areas that has to do with the, the fear and, and, um, and the stimulation within the amygdala. And it, it kind of shuts that off. So you remove that piece of it. But the other thing is it also shuts down the lateral prefrontal cortex. And the lateral is what is in control of the top-down processing. And so once that's shut off, all of a sudden the bottom-up stuff starts coming into, into your field. This is why people, when they, when they go on uh, journey doses with ketamine, you know, they're having all of these magical experiences. I mean, some of them can't really make sense from, from occurring from the, you know, an epiphenomenon of the neurons of the brain, something else going on. It's, uh, just, it can't work that way, but it allows you to experience a lot of the subconscious when you're on it. The, the nasal spray, that low dose gives you, gives you a little bit of a glimpse of that. So I know people that will, will do the nasal spray for creative sessions and um, for meditation and because it really truly takes away that, that uh, top-down processing, it takes away a lot of the uh, emotional fear related to things and gives you that ability to kind of look from a non-emotional. I know a lot of people talk about the ability that ketamine opens up these vaulted areas in the brain of, of past trauma. So past experiences where they, they really uh, had pushed it away so that it wasn't part of their memories. We see people with ketamine, even with a nasal spray, when we're talking to them and they're doing the brain stimulation, they'll come out and they'll go, I remember this experience when I was a child where I, and it's, it's something that had, when you look back at it, it was something that they were kind of holding and, and recreating in their, in their life because they weren't aware that it existed. But ketamine opens those, those vaulted memories really well. And that's why in, in psychotherapy using the ketamine a really good psychotherapist can help people to navigate that and draw out those areas that they have not been aware that they actually experienced right about now i'm going to share with you one of my favorite superfood blends it's called red juice by organifi and this is what i use personally to recharge my mind and body with organic superfoods that contain potent adaptogens antioxidants and a clinical dose of cordyceps mushrooms This stuff is great for energy with zero caffeine and only two grams of sugar. 
And here's the quick stats on this bomb berry drink mix. First thing is, of course, that it tastes delicious in just plain water, so there's no need for a blender. It's also loaded with 13 superfoods and is, of course, 100% USDA certified organic. This berry blend, my friends, is incredibly nutrient-dense, and it's my go-to for morning and afternoon jump starts, but especially, and this is my secret weapon, before, during, and after workouts. The blood flow it creates is insane due to the beets and cordyceps mushrooms. It's also packed with blueberries, acai, pomegranate, raspberry, Siberian ginseng, reishi mushroom, and rhodiola. To get your hands on some of this stuff, here's what you do. Go to Organifi.com Lifestylist and use the code Lifestylist for a whopping 20% off any item in the store. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I, Organifi.com slash Lifestylist. And again, the code is Lifestylist. I love the jugs of red juice for home use and the travel packets when I'm on the go. They have tons of other incredible products on their site, so make sure to check them out and use that discount code of Lifestylist. Again, that's Organifi.com slash Lifestylist. So because of its disassociative effect, you're able to go into those memories or thoughts that would have been triggering to the amygdala and re-traumatize you and potentially with that sense of, I'm just thinking in my own experiences that that sense of detachment, it's almost yeah. like the trauma happened to someone else and you just remember it, but you don't remember it to the point where it's going to reactivate the neurochemistry of reliving a trauma. Like if you say you hadn't faced an early childhood trauma ever in your life, it's a big secret. You've never told anyone. You've never really explored that shadow. If you were to just start talking about it with someone, it could have the effect of actually kind of re-traumatizing you and not giving you the ability to heal it or work through it. Yeah. Right. I think that's, I don't think, I know that's been the huge benefit of uh, plant medicine ceremonies and things like that for me is I've been able to go into um, areas, not things that I haven't faced, but just things that I thought, oh, I'm over that. Like I've talked about it in therapy. I've journaled, I've prayed on it. It's not really affecting me anymore, but circumstances in my life mm, demonstrated to the contrary because I'd have patterns that I was still stuck in. And the only thing I could connect them to were early trauma that I thought I was over. And in those medicine experiences, Many times I've been shown, hey, let's, you want to look at this thing? And I'm like, take a deep breath, <laughs> yeah. take the eye mask off for a minute. Oh, this is what I do. And I go, okay. And I kind of get myself ready. And I'm like, okay, let's go. And then God guides medicine, whatever, we'll go in there and we start looking around and feeling things and all of that. But there's this sort of safety net to where I can really get in there. And it's much more objective than subjective. And I can experience it without actually feeling, well, you might feel the pain, but not the pain in a way that's going to have me walking away feeling like I just got, you know, hit by a train. Yeah. It's like you actually come out of it and you're like, wow, I'm actually lighter because I was able to go into those nooks and crannies and poke around and process and untangle some of those things um, psychologically and then come out and it's like, huh, that pattern's gone now. It's, it's phenomenal. I love the way you described that. It, being an objective observer, uh, this is this is very common with the ketamine. So people will see themselves in the scene, and you know the person that they're seeing in the scene is really emotionally involved in it, and yet they're looking at it, and they can sit there and describe what's happening to this child, 
and not be emotional about it because that amygdala has lessened that charge. It's not there, but they do feel the emotion of the child. So they, they have empathy for the child that's there. And I think that's what helps them to resolve it. Uh, a lot of them will say, you know, after really kind of viewing this, it wasn't, it didn't happen exactly the way I thought it did. Right. Uh, but that's the nice thing about ketamine uh, is that it can give you that objective perspective without the emotional charge that taints kind of what you actually perceived was happening. And it allows you to kind of work through it. And then once you get to the point where you can like look at that, I mean, this happens a lot with PTSD is people get in that loop where they, they can't, um, they can't go there because the emotional charge is so great, but you get them with the ketamine and they can start talking about what actually happened. You can walk them through the events uh, that initiated their PTSD and they can describe them. Um, whereas, you know, without any medication, and the same thing happens with MDMA therapy with, with uh, people because of that heart opening that they have and that safety that they feel they can walk through the trauma again. Yet this time, they're not in the trauma. They're observing the trauma. And once they do that, they suddenly realize this is a memory. This isn't still going on. This is a memory. And I can file it into my memory. And suddenly it's like they've, they've resolved this. I mean, the results they're getting with the MDMA trials are pretty outstanding for PTSD. There's a I think some of the early results were published uh, just this week that were pretty outstanding. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that. I've not done MDMA therapy, but I have done it in conjunction with the psilocybin ceremony on two occasions. And wow, <laughs> I mean, like the stuff that I was able to work through that was super scary, you know, like, like I said, to the point where the inquiry would kind of come in, hey, do you want to look at this? And I'm like, uh, that's my edge. That's my edge. Yeah. And I think the MDMA, well, in one case, MDMA, the other time it was um, Sassafras, MDA. But in both cases, because of that heart opening and that softening and that sense of safety, when the kind of uh, drama of the psilocybin thread came in, I think that's what really enabled me to kind of have the courage or to be able to let go into the experience and still felt held and not like, yeah. I'm going to hit up against something that's going to hurt me worse from looking at it. There's this, I don't know, a softening that takes place. And I guess that's why a lot of people um, that facilitate now use heart openers, right? As a, as a kind of an entry point, you start to feel into that. And then when you're ready to go full quantum blast off with whatever the medicine happens to be, in my case, it was psilocybin on those two occasions. Um, I don't know. There's just this, yeah, there's a sense of safety in that where you're able to more observe, participate in the threads that you go through, but also there's a non-attachment element to it that's really powerful. Right. And and also, you know, like like you've indicated, it's not just looking at something that, you know, is uncomfortable normally to face, but it actually gets unraveled. You know, there's something that happens where those synapses break loose. I, you know, I don't know what's happening clinically, but that's what I sense in my own experience um, has happened. And one time um, in an ayahuasca ceremony, I went, this is going to sound crazy to a lot of people, but this is just what happened. And the results have proven to be something happened that was positive. But 
I went back into some memories that were triggering me into these patterns. And I, my consciousness, my conscious awareness traveled physically into my brain and was in there, you know, disconnecting things from the hippocampus, you know, this memory. And then I could see the thread where that was connecting to my limbic system, to the limbic brain. And so when I would encounter something in today's life that reminded me of that past thing subconsciously, then it would elicit that same response and the dump of adrenaline and cortisol and all this stuff. And that's that fight or flight thing we call being triggered. And I went into there and just started toying around doing the psychic surgery on myself. And I thought, ah, this one's related to that. This thread goes to that. This one goes to that. And I went in and just spent hours kind of working with that neuroplasticity. And, uh, and those triggers for the most part were gone after that. Yeah. It was incredible. And the brain loves that. I mean, the brain loves pattern patterns and pattern recognition. I mean, the, the connectome of the brain, I mean, there's more, more connections than there are stars in the entire galaxy, but it's so extensive and it's so plastic and, and throughout life it's plastic. It can change. Uh, we saw it, one of the, the classic examples is the um, London cab drivers who are really super great at knowing the street patterns and, and all they, I mean, they're brilliant at it, but what they found is that they're, their memory in other areas actually uh, was reduced. But after they retired, that pattern memory reduced and the other memories came up. Uh, the brain tends to allocate resources. So if you're using something pretty aggressively, they, they found this too with the uh, sniper training for DARPA, where they were um, using uh, brain simulation techniques to accelerate the learning curve. On the snipe for the snipers, and their learning curve was off the chart. I mean, it was just compared to the controls, they learned very quickly. But what happened is, when it came to putting it into practice, they lost automaticity. So they had taken resources from one area, and what what happens is all of these little dendrites and and um, little connections that are occurring throughout the brain start getting heavy in the areas that are being used and directed in the areas that are not, the resources are pulled from there. And so you see a pulling back of some of these uh, little dendrites. Uh, and it's fascinating because, you know, people want to enhance areas of the brain, but you have to understand there's going to be a price you pay for that. And a lot of times we don't know what that is. And that's why I like, uh, I like doing things in combination. So like doing the, uh, the brain training, you know, having a good kind of, foundational nootropic to give support to the brain in all of this because the brain's going to be burning through a ton of resources and you've got to have all of those precursors ready to go. So uh, using the uh, a, a nootropic supplement to kind of give you that and um, and using the ketamine to, to boost the brain's ability to do it and then you do the stimulation. So that's why I say there's never a, there's never a single thing that's going to make a difference. For people, it's usually combinations. For those that are listening and don't know what a nootropic is, could you define that? A nootropic is essentially anything that can, uh, well, in a sense, it's anything that can alter brain function in some way uh, through neurochemical means. And um, 
what we typically talk of of nootropics when it comes to supplements. Uh, One of the classic ones that we all do, a lot of us do, is caffeine. Caffeine is a nootropic. Uh, Things people wouldn't even consider nootropics like creatine, which we, we take the bodybuilders, it's always in the, in the protein shakes, and, but it's a great nootropic in and of itself. Or caffeine, I mean, not caffeine, yeah. uh, nicotine. Nicotine, right. um, great nootropic, a little bit of nicotine, boosts brain activity. That's why a lot of people, they're, they're kind of microdosing with the gum or the lozenges. I am, I am right now. Give, yeah. a, give a shout out to my friends over at Lucy. <laughs> so four milligram pouches, wow, they are strong. No, these are eight milligrams. That's Holy why. cow, that's a big dose. Yeah, yeah. Their gum is four, and they're like, how do you like the gum? I said, oh, it's good. I go through them pretty quick. And they're like, try this. But I have one in right now. I use, I use the one milligram. <laughs> really? Yeah. I'm sure that's enough. I think, honestly, I've become a little addicted to them, I'm, I'm going to admit, because I find myself going like, did I leave it in my car? Where It's those signs of addiction, like you're thinking about it more I like than... I in my car, so... <laughs> you're thinking about it more than a normal person would, you know, kind of thing. But anyway, uh, so nootropic. So, um, so we got this... I, I, I happen to have one of these in the kitchen, this Qualia. The caffeine-free one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this stuff, and you know, I always feel weird talking about products on my show, but I'm just being honest. This stuff is freaking amazing. Yeah. And I've been taking it for, I don't know, ever since it came out. It's been a few years now. Now, I'm currently using the decaf version of it because I found when I would take the version of Qualia that had caffeine, and I kind of forget that I took that the original one. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'd have a coffee and then I would just be like, ah, just over caffeinated. And I don't know if I metabolize caffeine slowly or quickly. I think relatively quickly, it doesn't seem to last. I can have a coffee midday and it doesn't interrupt my sleep scores, but I definitely feel it a lot more than I think your average person. So now I just strictly use the decaf qualia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing because it doesn't seem to have any you know, counter indications with anything else that I do. Cause I might do, you know, some of the racetams or like on a really bad day, I might do a modafinil or a microdose this or that. And it just seems to be foundational. So with this particular nootropic, it seems to me based on the ingredient deck and some of the things I can't pronounce and don't know what they are, but it seems to be more kind of in the precursor category, like a brain food rather than something exogenous that, is going to actually directly make your brain do this or that. Do I have that roughly right? That part of it, yeah. Um, this is actually what drew me to the company. Um, I had uh, I'd been using nootropics for years. I even had a nootropic course online and talked about all of the different racetams and um, modafinils and all of the, the things that could be used in, as ingredients. And uh, generally with with cognitive enhancement, I was getting about a 50-50 response from clients on it. So some of them would absolutely love it, say it was the best thing in the world, and others that didn't do anything or made things worse. And I suddenly, I guess it was it was like released in October. And then within three months, I had like four of my clients come in and said, oh my God, I started taking this qualia and I can't believe how good it makes me feel and how um, productive I am with it and how clear I am with it. And it's like, I haven't even heard of this stuff. So I looked it up and I was already into systems at that point. And I'm reading about this product. I'm like, this is a systems-based approach to a supplement. It's the first time I'd ever seen that. 
And what they had done is they had looked at the way brain works. They said, okay, what's required from a precursor standpoint? What's required to deliver those precursors, like the increasing the blood flow to the brain? Um, what do we have to do to mitigate things that are going to be side effects in the brain? And predominantly, if we increase brain activity, we're going to increase free radical production. So we're going to increase inflammation in the brain. We're going to increase um, breakdown products that have to be cleared. And so they, they took an approach of looking at how they could address each of these areas simultaneously. And that the original Qualia product, um, I missed that one because it had new pept in it, but um, this one still does all of that stuff and works in conjunction with all kinds of different things. But it's this, it's this foundation that you can build off of or you can use it by itself because tons of people will take it. And the nice thing is you can adjust how many capsules you take for the response that you get. Because I find that at low dose, I don't pay attention to anything, but I know it's giving me the foundation. At higher doses, it actually gives me that cognitive enhancement that I'm looking for. Um, so I'll, I'll go some days on the higher doses, um, most days on the low. How many capsules would a high dose be for you? Uh, usually six to eight. Yeah. yeah. I find I do about four. Yeah. Four every morning. I like three to four as a baseline. Yeah. Because it's, I think it's a good thing for people too, as kind of an entry level nootropic because mm -hmm. you can titrate, as you said, right? And if you start to hit the threshold where you're like, wow, I really noticed this, it's not, I don't find it to be jarring. And I've given them to people. And sometimes they're like, I don't feel anything. I'm like, how many did you take? And they're like, two. And I go, well, <laughs> on the bottle, it says take six. So take four, see how you feel. Take six, take eight. Because as you said, so brilliantly, every brain is so unique. There's no two brains alike. They're snowflake brains. But it's not as um, it's not as strong as some of the things that I would categorize more as smart drugs, you know, things that are totally lab, things you wouldn't want to take every day. Yeah, lab synthesized, right. you know, your modafinil, the Rastams, things like that. But it, it's really interesting to see, too, that, I mean, to the point of brains being different, I've talked about modafinil a lot because I, I like it when, mainly these days, just when I fly, because I find that I'm not as fatigued when I land. I'll do it, like, before I land, I'll take maybe, like, a quarter of modafinil or a half or something, and then I land, and I'm actually, like, fairly awake and able to handle the things when I land. But um, I've talked about it a lot. So my friends are always curious and they'll take it. And I said, you know, just take a quarter so you don't feel too speedy. They take a quarter. They don't feel anything. Uh, and then they, they'll move up. I've had friends that have taken a whole 200 milligram tab of modafinil and they don't feel anything at all. Wow. And then other friends take a quarter and they're like, I felt like I was on meth. I hate this. You know, it's so mm -hmm. interesting to see like that. But I think that's you run a little more of a risk of an adverse sort of reaction like that when you're doing things that are just, I guess, as you said, just kind of activating one part of the brain without having that systems approach. And then finding the right blend of these different things is kind of like poor man's chemistry and yeah. maybe not as universally reliable and predictable mm -hmm. as just like the quality of mind is you're going to get, as you said, the precursors, the things that open the pathways, the things that get the metabolites out of the brain that are produced. It's, it's pretty cool. It's brilliant. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that sold me on, on that. So I had a, a long conversation with, with Daniel Schmachtenberger, and we talked five minutes about this and ended up talking like 
45 minutes or an hour and a half about just systems and medicine. And uh, it was just fascinating. Then a month later, he called me up and he said, would you be interested in being our medical director? And that was the history of me becoming medical director for them. That's cool. What, what other um, things do you do as part of your role there? I know they've come out with like a sleep product and, you know, they've yeah. very carefully dripped out other products in their product line relatively slowly. I, I'm assuming because of the R&D that goes into the systems for yeah. each particular thing they want to work on. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Daniel is like the, he's Daniel Schmachtenberger has been the primary formulator and uh, he's just brilliant with the way he, he thinks and I can remember uh, one time we were out there and we decided we were going to develop the sleep formula. We'd been working on it on a, we had an Excel spreadsheet online with, I mean, we had 250 different ingredients and we would classify them in what pathway they affected, what cross pathways they would interact with, what, uh, what they needed to support them. So we had this huge spreadsheet and then I went out there and, uh, Daniel's a bit of a vampire. He like <laughs> I remember that from his interview. Yeah. He's like, we can't start until 5 p.m. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's specific time, and I'm in bed by that time. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I went out there and we started we would start at like one o'clock each day, but we would be just locked in a room. It was me, Daniel, and uh, Dan Party. Um but the three dance in the room and, and we had a whiteboard and we were just marking off ingredients and adding ingredients. This was getting the sleep formula uh, formula, but we did that for three straight days. And um, it was like eight, nine hours in that one room and just throwing things out and discussing, you know, well, if we do that, then we can't do this one. And if we, it was amazing to go through that, but it was all theory. And then they started formulating the product and testing it, making adjustments in that and, and we get feedback on that. And the the formulation process is a lot of fun with them. Well, I can imagine. I mean, when I first got this product, it was I didn't really understand the systems approach. So I looked at it at first. I remember looking at the ingredient deck and going like, they just put everything that you could possibly put in your brain to help it in one thing. Like, yeah. it's probably overkill or else there's not enough of any of the one thing to really do anything. I mean, that was just my first glance at it, you know, cause I'm used to things that are, have three things and you know, you, you feel it in a way. Um, but yeah, it's pretty amazing uh, what you guys have done with that stuff. Um, going back to the kind of overarching nootropic topic, do you have any distinction between a nootropic and a smart drug or are those just two words that people use interchangeably for the same kind of deal? Yeah. Same thing. I mean, I mean what, what do you consider smart? What do you consider cognitive enhancement? I mean, you know, uh, some people think increasing empathy is cognitive enhancement. Other people think you've got to increase intelligence or you've got to increase creativity. So cognitive enhancement, smart drugs, nootropics, I mean, it all, all falls into the same category, but the definition of that is going to vary by the person. I think I've, in my own mind, separated them based on if something is synthesized like modafinil or aniracetam or uh, paracetam or something like that versus, um, you know, acetylcholine or some other kind of precursor that's more plant-based or an extract derived from an herb or something in nature. I've kind of broken them up like that, but I think it's just my own way of 
determining whether or not I'm taking something that comes from nature or something that comes from a lab. And ultimately, I mean, obviously, if you if you break down the constituents of an herb and you're extracting the, you know, the effective molecules out of it, then, well, that's now kind of synthesized in a way, too. So pretty much everything that's not just a ground up herb, like a kratom or something like that, that you just don't touch, you just grind it up and eat it, I guess would be qualified as that. Um, Why are you so prejudiced? <laughs> well, here's the thing I came to recently, actually, because I was thinking about, it's an interesting thing maybe to kind of explore, but I was thinking about the difference between, you know, something like iboga or ayahuasca or psilocybin, where you have something from the, you know, plant or fungi kingdom. People always call mushrooms plant medicines. It irritates me because it's not a plant. Uh, or something like Bufo uh, 5-MeO, again, not a plant. I don't know what to call them all, but these are things that just exist in nature on their own. I mean, I guess with ayahuasca, you got to brew two things together to get, you know, the uh, inhibition of the liver to get the DMT in and all that. But there's a school of thought amongst the kind of shamanic community that something's only legitimate if it just comes from nature. Mm-hmm. And that something like an LSD or MDMA that has to be completely synthesized in a lab is uh, of lesser value or not part of nature. And I was thinking about this. I want to see what your take is. Because humans are nature, right? We're the, well, this is a fake plant, but <laughs> when I see plants, I often remind myself, like, you're the same as that. I see a deer in the neighborhood and I used to think, well, there's an animal and then there's a me, but like, I am that animal. I'm the dirt, I'm the soil, the microorganisms. So thinking of oneself as nature then would lead one down the path that if a human mind and intention had the idea to synthesize certain molecules or combine different chemicals in a lab, that the net result of that is also a natural product because humans are natural. Well, regardless of that, though, I mean, you know, I, I get into the, this, this discussion a lot because people will come in and they'll say, I only want natural products. And I'm like, okay, why? And I'm like, oh, because they're, they're better for you. And like, you have no idea what the body's actually doing with this to you. I mean, supplements, plants, uh, foods that we eat, they're foreign bodies to, to our body. I mean, they're not, we don't produce them. So we're putting in a foreign substance. And what they do is they go in and they react with our cells. And even plants, most plants have a low-grade toxicity to them, to the body. And that's a benefit, though. It's a hormetic benefit on the liver. It upregulates the detoxification system, but you're actually poisoning yourself with them. Like if you take a bitter herb or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, but medicines are the same way. You know, medicines, even though they're synthetic from the lab, they're still an input to the system that the, sim- the system doesn't say, oh, it's natural or that's a plant. It's seeing a molecule that's affecting it, and it responds to it. So it has to react to, to these inputs that go in. So I, I get people to get off the, the idea of classifying anything. Uh, just look at it as an input to the system. Is it giving you the net result that you're looking for? Because everything we put in, there's a pro and a con. Absolutely everything. Even foods that we eat, there's a pro and a con to every food that we eat. And they're bio-nutrients is what they are. 
And beyond the caloric aspect of them, they have all kinds of other impacts on the body. And you have to look at it and say, okay, is this going to net result in the benefit I'm looking for? And people went down this road with metformin and uh, it cracks me up that people talk about metformin because it's a derivative of the French lilac. I mean, they just took out the poisonous parts of the French lilac so they could use the molecule. Um, but they were talking about this, you know, it's a, it's a great longevity medication. And we've been using it for years in the longevity industry, but there was this report about how it causes some uh, toxicity to mitochondria. And so people were like, oh, it damages mitochondria, you got to stop taking it. I'm like, so what? I mean, what's the net result, though, that you're getting? I mean, you get all these positives, you have this one negative that you've identified so far, what's the net result? What are you trying to achieve with it? And the net result is, yes, it's going to elevate this outcome that you're looking for. So taking, and this is the problem with complex systems, when people try to look at the individual uh, parts of it, like in a watch, you know, we can look at this one cog and know exactly what it does. And, you know, if you remove it, you know, what the hell, what happens then? The human system doesn't work that way because all of these interactive uh, pieces play off of each other and have feedback loops and it's just, uh, it's impossible to, to actually isolate. So we have to do predictabilities with it. And, um, and people do, they get on this, uh, this kick of, you know, this is better for you or because it's natural. Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of natural things that will kill you too. And, <laughs> you know, do you want to try rattlesnake venom? <laughs> I mean, you could do DMT from a lab and, and not have to throw up. Or you can do the ayahuasca and, and throw up. So, you know, it's a it, it's a plus minus for just about everything. I'll be honest, it takes a lot to get my attention when it comes to new supplements and health products. Uh, there's just so much noise in the industry. It's hard for even me to keep up, and I'm super into this stuff. The most common benefit I'm after when it comes to supplementation is more energy. And when you hear upcoming episode 389 with Dr. Chris Wrench, you'll know how important mitochondrial function is when it comes to energy. My latest and greatest discovery for mitochondria is something called MitoPure, which is a breakthrough postbiotic that activates your body's natural defense against aging. It's super cool. It's actually the first product to offer a precise dose of a compound derived from pomegranate called urolithin A to upgrade mitochondrial function, increase cellular energy, and improve muscle strength. When you're ready to give it a try, you've got three ways to get your daily dose of 500 milligrams of MitoPure, which is what I take every day. First, they've got a berry powder, which is I use most consistently. You can put it in anything. They've also got soft gels. They've also got an incredible vanilla protein powder, which combines the muscle building power of protein and the cellular energy of MitoPure to support healthy muscle in a whole new way. Personally, if I were you, I'd go for the starter pack, which lets you try all three forms of MitoPure. Right now, as a special offer for my audience, you can use the promo code LUKE10 and get 10% off any 2, 4, or 12-month MitoPure plans. You can find it at TimelineNutrition.com. That's TimelineNutrition.com. And the code again is LUKE10. Well, I thought about that debate from another perspective too. So you have a plant, right? And the plant has its own intelligence and people that really believe in medicine plants of all types, not just psychoactive ones, uh, sort of trust that plant, that that plant has 
put together certain molecules that signal reactions in our bodies and in the brains. But if we're really the same as a living organism, if we, if we take ourselves out of this hierarchy that humankind is above the intelligence of a plant, yet we're putting so much faith into the intelligence of that plant, right? What about the chemist who synthesizes some formula? Are they not doing the same exact thing as the plant is doing? Right. Right? It's like, you know, the ayahuasca vine. It's got dimethyltryptamine in it, and it's making it out of soil and water and sunlight, right? Yeah. And then it took another human to go, oh, interesting. Well, if we put this plant, this, uh, this vine with this leaf, and we boil it up and we drink it, something else happens, right? So... That's the system's kind of approach to this. There's a synergy between the work that plants do, just like the work that uh, animals do by making nutrients that are not bioavailable in the soil and in the plants available to us in the case of like a animal fat, right? That has right. things that we can't get in a concentrated way from nature and our bodies need and use. So I think that's another way to kind of zoom out from that and not be so dualistic in the it's either this or that right. because the human mind is essentially doing the same thing as the plant is. It's just using a laboratory instead of its own grounded, innate chemistry mm-hmm. to produce that signaling molecule. Yeah. That's kind of where I've arrived at it because with things like ketamine, I mean, that even has a feel of something not natural. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. There's something with you when you do a, you know, ayahuasca or bufo or psilocybin it feels to me more natural in my body than, than like a ketamine does, for example. Well, I think a lot of that, though, has to do with the set setting. Right. I right. mean, you know, these ketamine clinics, I mean, these sterile environments where you go in and you're laying on a table with an IV in your arm. And, you know, there's not much ritual or ceremony associated with that. Right. Um, so set and setting have a huge impact on the outcomes that people have. I mean, that's why... Ayahuasca is so uh, so much related to ceremony and ritual because that informs on the outcome. And I was like when uh, you know Brian Moore Rescue and the uh, uh, in the uh, what was it the Immortality Key? Oh yeah, I'm about halfway yeah. through that. He was talking about how they would use the the entheogens in in the wine and the bread. In, in church and people would go in and they would take it. They would have these experiences, but they were kind of framed in the set and setting that it was a religious experience they were having because they were eating the, the body of God and drinking and the blood of Jesus. And, you know, the, it's, it gives them that pre-framing of things. And then when they experience it, that's what they tend to experience so when people do the ritual aspects with the ayahuasca, you tend to evolve into that experience as part of the ritual. Yeah, so true. I guess uh, one could be led then to, I mean, I'm not suggesting people do this. I think <laughs> you should have a guide, but let's say one was to do ketamine and actually be outdoors immersed in nature. You probably would have a much different subjective experience. Oh, for sure. And perhaps not have something that feels so, I don't know. It always feels a little bit mechanistic to me. I, I don't understand it. I never got why people started ketamine to party. Oh my God. Nightmare. 
Oh my God. That's, I can't imagine a worse experience. I'm, I remember a couple of years ago, I was watching one of those uh, intervention shows or something, and they were following this kid who was addicted to ketamine, you know, and he would do, I don't know how many milligrams, but a massive dose of it. And then just kind of hang out and party, you know? And I'm like, Hey, how's the guy walking? <laughs> like, how do you get across the room? Cause it's so sort of paralyzing. It's uh, an anesthetic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. Um, interesting, interesting thread. Um, where I want to go next with you, my friend, uh, let me see. I have so many questions for you. It'd probably be a, a two hour uh, plus interview if I'm not careful. Not that I'm mad at that. By the way, do you have anywhere to be? Or are you good for the long haul? I'm good. Okay, good. I love that. What about the uh, synergistic effect of taking something like quality of mind? Uh, you kind of alluded to this earlier as your foundation because it's not terribly upsetting or dysregulating. It's, it's pretty mild, I find, and even in a high dose. There's just kind of, hmm, someone turned the lights on. Are there any other stacks that you've experimented with, with that as the foundation, like taking a racetam or, or some of these other nootropics that are a little more hard hitting? Well, prior to, to using uh, qualia or finding qualia, I'm just creating my own stacks and, and I would take a similar approach that they would. Okay, let's get increased blood flow. Let's look at these uh, precursor molecules that need to be supplied there to keep the, the engine running. Um, so I would do like alpha GPC uh, pretty commonly. I would use some type of nitric oxide booster and then do the, uh, the nootropic and it would, I would experiment with the racetams um, with some of the uh, adrafinils, just different forms. Um, and there, I mean, there's a there's hundred different classifications of, of these and you just kind of work with them to find one that, that you like. And it just so happened that I like Nupept, which is a peptide, which I love peptides. I mean, that's, that's the way to go in my opinion because uh, peptides are different than what we talked about in the body being unfamiliar and reacting. Peptides, the body knows what it is. It's something that, that it produces, and it's a, an amino acid sequence goes in there. It goes to the receptor that it's designed to go to, and the body knows how to respond to it. So it's a very on-target effect. And uh, Nupept is, is wonderful. Uh, some people don't get a response from it, but I find that people who do respond to it really love it. Unfortunately, it's not available other than as a research chemical right now, which is kind of ironic considering the body makes it it's, uh, it's a very simple amino acid. Well, that's a good segue into the peptides then, uh, something that I've experimented with over the past couple of years. I've done the standard stuff, um, B, BP157, uh, TB500, melanotan, uh, and DSIP, and I think CMAX, mm -hmm. a few different ones here and there. And... My body, I guess it's because of the reason you just explained, I respond really well to peptides, like they do what they're supposed to do. Um, but the thing that I found challenging about, and I think a lot of people listening to this will also find challenging, is that you know they're for research only online. And so unless you know a doctor or a clinic that you can go through that has access to a legit compound uh, compounding pharmacy, it's kind of the wild west. Like I use peptide scientists just because enough smart Doctors and people have said, yeah, they're, they're legit. Um, but even when you get your hands on some that are clean and not tainted and are actually real, the 
the dosing of them is actually really challenging. You got to be really good at math, right? Because you're counting, well, how many you know mLs does this syringe have, and how much of the the backwater do I put in there to get the, I mean, it's just like mind boggling. So um, I've gone in and out of it at different times just because it's so difficult to kind of figure out on your own if you're not a doctor that understands these things. Are you guys uh, in your clinic working with peptides? And- oh, yeah. We've been working with peptides for probably five years now. Um, and it comes and goes because sometimes the compounding pharmacies are able to, to make them. And then other times the FDA sends them a letter and says, quit paying them. And so we lose things that we start working with. Um, I've really had amazing results with, with most of the peptides. I mean, Thymosin Beta-4 uh, is a healing peptide. It is just unbelievable. Uh, Thymosin Alpha, which boosts the immune system. And um, there was a lot of docs that got in trouble during COVID because they were promoting it as beneficial to uh, to the immune system. To yeah, God forbid we help people today. build an immune system. <laughs> well, it's, it's strange because they, they uh, took it off the market. FDA came in and said, you know, you can't do this. And they sanctioned doctors for making the claims. And and yet there is, there's plenty of studies on it. Uh, on the commercial brand, Thymalpsin, which is a commercially made Thymusin Alpha, but you can't really patent something body already makes. Uh, so the only, I guess the only control they had was to actually go in and tell the, have some reason why the compounding pharmacists could make it. Well, thymalpsin is not approved in the United States yet. So they said, it's not, a, it's not a product to compound something. It has to be a component of an existing product that's in the commercial market, but not the same. And uh, that's happened with, with a couple of them, like Tessa Moreland, Tessamorlin is kind of a modified growth hormone releasing hormone. Um, but there's you know, it's $1,000 a month to treat AIDS wasting syndrome. And you could get it from a compounding pharmacy at one fifth of that price. Right. But, Do you think that's behind the FDA periodically coming after peptides? Is it is it like an influence of the pharmaceutical industrial complex that's like, I mean, that doesn't want anyone to compete. Conspiracy that everybody goes for doesn't want anyone to compete with patented drugs that are, you know, much uh, much more profitable. I mean, you know, the thing is, they're enforcing the laws that exist. I mean, although there's been a couple that were like, wait, that doesn't qualify under that law, but they went ahead and did it. Um, There's been a few like that, but not many. I mean, most of them, they they do. They come up with um, with requirements like to get Tessa Moreland off. They said. Okay, you can't compound anything over, I think it's 40 amino acids long. And so that took off a couple of the peptides. They just said it's just not safe. You know, once you get that long, you can't, you can't guarantee the purity as well. Um, but who knows? I mean, you know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm more of an optimist in, in thinking that there's not some evil agenda out there to uh, take these away, but just you know, people ill-informed. Well, it's, you know, it's also, I'm so uh, just innately anti-establishment and paranoid. (laughs) So I'm always like, it's the man trying to hold us back. But on the other side, like, let's say the FDA just went, okay, it's the Wild West, everyone do what you want. I mean, we'd have a lot of either fake or tainted peptides on the market, and there probably still are coming from, you know, China or wherever they come from. But it's like, they're 
there kind of needs to be some regulatory agency to make sure that... Well, there is. It's called Reddit. <laughs> and, and it works extremely well. I mean, companies that are putting out false stuff, they, they get found out really quick because the people on Reddit, their experience with them, and they'll take somebody's product and they'll say, uh-uh, this didn't work. And then other people will chime in on it and suddenly the company just gets all this bad press. So, uh, you know, this crowdsourcing of this stuff, of the, of the nootropics, uh, I mean, that's where I learned most about nootropics when I first started down the path was on Reddit. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, when it comes to the ones that you mentioned that support the thymus and thus the immune system, I wanted to dive into that a little bit because I was talking to one of our uh, two-time guests and a friend named Robert Slovak a couple of days ago, and we were talking about immunity, and he said, Luke, it's all about the thymus. He said, when you're younger, your thymus is about the size of a walnut. By the time you're, whatever it was, 50, it's the size of a pea. You know, a lot of people don't pay much attention to this little gland. And then, yeah, my next question was, well, I'm 50. <laughs> like, how much has my thymus shrunk, and how do I help it? And we didn't get to that part of the conversation. So these peptides that uh, signal to the thalamus, how, how do they work? And is that what makes them effective at boosting immunity? Because they're kind of nourishing that gland again or what? Uh, well, it's, I mean, your glands uh, atrophy completely by 50. I mean, by 30, most people don't have any function of the thymus gland anymore. Um, Dr. Fahey, who did the um, this study with, um, with Horvath, on the epigenetic age reversal with growth hormone, vitamin D, DHEA, and metformin. Uh, he was doing some work using, and I think it was thymus and alpha. He was pretty vague on what he was using, but he was using growth hormone, thymus and alpha, and something else, but he was getting actual regrowth of uh, the thymus. Wow. People, he was doing MRI wow. studies, and uh, I had a conversation with him, and he, you know, I could tell that he was probably using it, but I can't can't say for sure because uh, he was very secretive about the, the research. Um, but, you know, that's a big deal, bringing the thymus back. I mean, there's the potential. And I've heard from a researcher that with the rejuvenation of the thymus, they were able to get people to resolve um, thyroid, autoimmune thyroid issues. Wow. Which, wow, I mean, that's huge. That's that's all just hearsay, but you yeah. know, that's what they were talking about. And, and you know, this is a big part of aging. I mean, we look at CD4, CD8 cells and we say, you know, how much of these are aged cells versus uh, naive cells. And this is a good marker of aging. It's called the extrinsic age. It's marking the age of the immune system. And um, things that can boost that, uh, that we, we have seen when we were able to use thymus and alpha, we were actually seeing that happen in, in clients. Um, again, anecdotal, uh, our experience, we don't have a good research, uh, study on it, but what we look at is good sense making when it comes to, to informing decisions and then setting up ways to measure whether it's working or not. And with that, we could measure the CD4, CD8 levels see what was happening. Oh, interesting. Uh, let's run through a couple of the other peptides. So a couple that I mentioned, I think these are the most ubiquitous with peptide users is the BPC-157. Mm-hmm. It's a body protective compound. Is that what yeah. that stands for? And then the TB-500. Those seem to be often used in conjunction. 
And those are ones that I've experimented with, just doing them like a subcutaneous injection, just systemically. But I've also used them in my bum shoulder and elbow and things like that, uh, which is a little, <laughs> typically a little more painful of a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is one school of thought that using peptides like that uh, locally at the problem area doesn't make any difference that you just do them systemically like with the sub Q shot. And then there are other people that say, oh no, they work much better if you do them locally. Have you had any differential of experience between we, those? We don't have a good answer on that. Um, you know, um, I'm always in favor of a more systemic approach, depending on what you're trying to do. I mean, if you do have traumatized tissue that, that is in a very local area, you know, why not insert, inject into that area? I mean, it's still creating a systemic effect. It's just being a little bit more concentrated in that particular area. Um, but some of these don't necessarily work right at that area. They work at something distant to create a response that, that causes it to happen. Like PPC-157, one of its best things is its ability to create angiogenesis, which is growth of new blood vessels. Um, we found just spectacular results with the oral BPC-157 with people with uh, any gut dysbiosis uh, or intestinal issues. I mean, it's almost 100% of the people we put it on. We don't even use uh, probiotics, prebiotics, um, gut healing protocols, we use PPC. We have for a month or two and they're done and they're all healed up. And you know, that's interesting because I've been using this oral BPC 157 from a company called BioPure. And I read a bunch of stuff on their site and I was like, it seems much more legit than some of the other oral versions. And I forget exactly what their metrics uh, were, but it was convincing enough that I thought I'd try it. Mm -hmm. And I just ran out of it. Actually, I got (laughs) to get some more. But it's interesting because my gut has improved a lot, but I also do enzymes and different, you know, probiotic runs and eat a lot of bone broth and I do other things. So it's one thing that kind of sucks about being the kind of experimental guy that I am is it's often difficult for me to say exactly what's doing what. So I can't unequivocally say I just live my normal life and I started doing the oral BPC-157 from BioPure. Thanks, BioPure, for sending it to me. I appreciate it. I can't say that it was just that because they did all these other things. And yeah. I just, I don't have the kind of uh, discipline to just do isolated tests on things, which is, it's, it's a disadvantage because I can't share that with the audience and say, okay, I didn't change anything about this one thing and here's what it did for me. But I can say that a combination of, you know, using the Bioptimizers enzymes and uh, the Just Thrive Spore-Based Probiotics, like a lot of my sponsors on the show, it's stuff that I take all the time. And as a net result of all of those things, like my gut is better than ever. Digestion, everything. I said horrible heartburn and just, you know, digestive problems of uh, not regular bowel movements, you know, too much one way or the other. I won't be too graphic, but uh, that's interesting because I kind of forgot about that part of the BPC-157. I just took it because, well, it's good for you, you know? I should share, I have a conflict of interest because I have a supplement company that we sell BPC-157s. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you guys have an oral version of it? Yeah. Oh, no shit. What's it called? BPC-157. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> the, 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 it's, it's a Puron, A-P-E-I-R-O-N. Oh, and is that the name of your clinic too? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So we have a genetic company, we have uh, a supplement company, we have an education company, and we have the clinics. Wow. And wow. a mastermind. Well, your brain's got to be really working uh, yeah. in order to manage all that. Okay, so BPC-157, 
Uh, and then what about TB500? That one seems to be popular and kind of used for similar stuff. Yeah, they they kind of cross over. Like when we were when we had it available for prescribing, um, people would have a a good result. It's usually the first one you try. You will claim it has a better result for you. So if you try BBC157 first and then you try TB thymus uh, and beta four, you'll be like, oh no, BBC better. If you try thymus and beta four first. You tend to get the response. I like the combination of two because you're anything for me. I don't like any one thing to go after something. I like combinations. Systems guy, right? Yeah. And so a combination of um, BPC one five seven, thymus and beta four, and like AOD, um, those work really well together for tissue healing. And I've seen really great accelerations in. And people that have been stagnant in their you know rehabilitation process, and they go on that, and and they just have really amazing results with them. That's cool. And then what about uh, this one? I always find funny, but also useful in some cases, and that's this melanotan mm-hmm. that you know results in this crazy tanning and also sometimes too long lasting erections in some people. <laughs> What what does melanotan have a place in your wheelhouse of Yeah, peptides? melanotan's pretty ubiquitous. Uh, I I do use it every year. Um, just because I don't like sunscreen. I don't like how it feels. I don't like having to put it on. And you know, I'm not really well protected up here. So I feel like having the tan is the most protective thing. And with melanotan, I can get a tan with much less UV exposure. And very rapidly, I mean, within a couple of days of just like 30 minute exposure for a couple of days and suddenly you've got like a full summer tan. Um, so it doesn't take much to do it. But again, it's not approved for human use. Um, right. But the melanotan 2 and the melanotan 1 are different animals. Ah, okay. Because I, I'm trying to think back. This is a couple of years ago, but I got some of the melanotan and it didn't really do the tanning thing, but it definitely did the erection thing, like to a fault. That was I mean, melanotan too. Okay, there you yeah. go. Thank you. Because I thought, oh, I guess I'm I'm olive skin. Maybe I just didn't notice it or something. The melanotan two crosses the blood brain barrier, whereas melanotan one does not. Ah, okay. So melanotan one is better if you're just wanting to get a tan, although it seems to be less uh, good at it as the uh, as melanotan two. But melanotan 2 crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it stimulates alpha MSH receptors. Um, this is where you get the erection piece of it. And in fact, they they found that to be so pronounced that they took the melanotan 2, and they said, what part of this is stimulating this, this response? And they found a small segment called PT-141. Uh, PT-141 is the erection peptide. Well, folks, winter is here, and we all know what that means. The days are getting shorter and colder, and we'll have less of a chance to get the healthy, natural sunlight we need. Thankfully, I've got a hack for that. It's my Juve Red Light Therapy System. That's J-O-O-V-V. Now, of course, Juve can't replace natural sunlight, but it does deliver similar wavelengths of light like red and near-infrared that have been clinically proven to be very beneficial for your health. In fact, thousands of peer-reviewed research articles have demonstrated the benefits of this light spectrum for things like skin health, reduced pain and inflammation, and faster muscle recovery. I've been using my Juve just about every day for the past four years, and it's one tool that I would definitely not want to live without. 
Another cool feature of Juve's latest generation of products is something they call ambient mode, which is a lower power red light that helps balance out the blue light in your environment, or you can just use it alone as a super bright red light before bed. So now this winter is the best time ever to invest in a Juve unit, and for a limited time, Juve is offering all of my listeners an exclusive discount on your first order. Just go to juve.com and apply my code Luke to your qualifying order. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com slash Luke. Of course, some exclusions apply as this is a limited time offer. So hurry up and swoop up a Juve. Yeah, actually, you know what? That's what I was taking. Oh, okay. Because I, I oh, that little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was PT-141. I've been out of it for a while. I, I liked it and it definitely works. I mean, yeah, you get directions for days. The thing that was weird about it was it was totally unpredictable in terms of when it was going to hit, you know? So one would think they were perhaps going to get frisky on a particular evening. And so maybe at 7 PM, you know, you think, well, it'll be a couple hours before that transpires and then nothing really happens. And then you find yourself waking up at one in the morning, like a 13 year old and not being able to get it to stop for many hours. Yeah. So, and then, you know, said partner might not be around or awake anymore. And you're kind of like left there with your D in your hand. Yeah. You're kind of free. Can't roll over in bed. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You're, you got a full pup tent going there. Um, so that I kind of was like, ah, oh, there's something here, but I really, I didn't, I didn't continue with it to try and get a predictable um, result with it, but yeah, absolutely. And no side effects of like, you know, a headache or something like that, that one would get with the Viagra. Or yeah, I had a lot of elderly clients that have found just a uh, complete saving grace in PT-141 because uh, the uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitors weren't working for them. And PT-141 actually gave them that, that sexual life back. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a problem. I mean, you can take it and sometimes it'll take eight, nine hours to even onset, whereas other times it'll take two hours. Yeah. I found that to be true. I guess that's why I didn't keep doing it. I thought, well, this could be useful, but you'd have to really like fine tune it to understand, you know, the, the duration and onset and things like that. Do you think the, the PT 141 would have a similar effect on females as well? Do they get like increased arousal or anything like that? uh, Anecdotally? Uh, I've had some females that tried it because they were looking for that, you know, that libido enhancement um, piece, and uh, not really much of a result. Okay. Although they do, they do get some sexual arousal with the melanotan too in certain, in certain females. Interesting. I wonder with the melanotan one, if it's having this sort of uh, protective effect that allows you to get less UV in a shorter period of time, and then tan. I wonder if there's any possibility of it helping with the production of uh, D3. Do you think it has any like interaction there? Has anyone done any testing to see if your D3 levels go up because you're able to take in and soak up so much sun? But, I mean, the, the tanning actually does increase. The tan skin does better with D3 mm-hmm. than with creating the, actually creating the D2. Um, and uh, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I think it would. I, I have all of my clients supplement uh, D3, so I don't rely on the sun because it's, uh, from a genetic standpoint, there's so many people that just don't do very well with converting. Yeah, yeah. With the melanotan one, is this something that uh, a fair-skinned person could use, someone that's, you know, a freckled 
of complexion. I've seen it, but you have to watch because uh, the initial thing is the freckles get darker. Ah, okay. And they can darken pretty significantly. I mean, people will be concerned about the risk of melanoma. There was one reported case, but the woman also had done 20 years of sunbed. Uh, oh, damn. So, um, hard to say if there was an actual yeah. causation there. Um, but you have to watch for that because they tend to darken freckles and they stay dark. Um, oh, really? I actually had a scar on my leg and I took it and got tanned and the scar is just like permanently dark um, from that, that one year that I got the scar and used it. Wow, interesting. And then what about for cognitive function? I mentioned uh, C-Max and I, I think I've done a couple other peptides that I got from uh, Craig Conover. He would send me these sort of preloaded syringes yeah. that had a nice blend of different peptides. I didn't pay that much attention. I just said he calls them the neuro something. And yeah. and I found them to be effective, but I just I couldn't keep up with it. You know what I mean? I ran yeah. out and then kind of forgot. But uh, I think C-Max was in there and maybe a couple other things. C-Max and, and C-Link both right. there you go, are yeah. really, really nice for some people, but not for many. Many people will take it and it's like it didn't do anything for me. Um, one that's been doing pretty well is um, RG3. It's not a peptide, but RG3 is a, uh, it also goes under the brand, brand of Synapsin, um, but it is a, uh, it is a ginkicide uh, derivative along with some methyl B12 something else I think in it, but it's a nasal spray. And I've had better results with that than I have with the peptide boosters, the, the you know, the short-term enhancers. Um, but I tell you, we were talking about this earlier, but the ketone esters are one of the best things I've seen. Right, thanks for reminding me of that. And why do you think, what do you think that is? Is it just you're giving the brain more ketones for energy? And so mm-hmm. those different activities that the brain, you know, as we know, the brain burns up so much energy working, doing all yeah, the things. It's 20% of your metabolism. And if you're focused on using it, it's going to be a lot more. That's crazy. So do you think it's just a, the ketone esters is just purely just energy, just yeah, fuel? It's just, it's just feeding the, a very clean fuel directly into it. Yeah. I take these, uh, uh, company Perfect Keto, and they have some uh, ketone esters that actually taste pretty good. There's like a no, no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to me, okay, because I've had just plain ketone esters, and I can I can eat or drink anything if it's good for me. Like the taste is secondary; I'll get over it. But maybe it's because I had those and they were so disgusting that I think the Perfect Keto ones. There's like a berry one and a chocolate one. I don't know. I Put a big old scoop in water, stir it up. I yeah, chuck it down. Yeah, and it they was taste good. okay. They don't have enough esters. <laughs> All right. I mean, the I have I have truly tried every one on the market. I just I just tried a new one today uh, from Juvenescence. It's a chocolate one, and I took it and I was like, oh my god, this actually tastes good. And then I was like, mm, no, okay, got the aftertaste and it was yeah. the, the ketone ester taste. Well, saying they taste good, I'll admit, is a little overstatement. I guess they taste, let's say they taste Tolerable. better than plain, okay? Because at least you're like, oh, I recognize some chocolatey flavor in there. It's better than just no. It, for me, the flavor almost makes it worse because you get like fooled a little bit by like the, the Delta G ketones comes in this like really syrupy, like berry flavor. And you and you take it and you taste it and it tastes like, like a really strong cough syrup flavor 
and that kind of goes down. But then the ketones come on. So the aftertaste, you still get the ketones. Right. So for me, I'm going with a, you know, I'd use the, the uh, ketonade, um, the KE4s. Okay. Just do a couple capsules of that and just get it over with, rinse it down, and I'm good. All right, good. And you were saying that you do that before uh, physical exercise too. Yeah, before workouts, uh, before any real big cognitive lift, sometimes for sleep too. Oh, well. interesting. Yeah, speaking of the brain burning energy, I, as I get more tuned into my brain function, I'm just always kind of optimizing that and getting a more narrow path where I can kind of tell what's doing what. Uh, it, was, yeah, it was yesterday. I attempted to adopt a new email program. It's called Superhuman, and a shout out to them. I think they're doing something very cool. I mean, it has potential, but I did the onboarding call with them. They turned me down. Oh, really? I could have referred you when I was still. I had too many emails for the beta program. Oh, okay. Well, they're up. They're able to do it now. By the way, okay. It's very cool. I mean, it's AI intuitive. I mean, oh, I know. It looked really awesome. I think it could be. They don't want me. It could be great for the right type of brain. But um, we did the, um, you know, the the onboarding consult, and it was maybe thirty minutes, and I was just my brain was exhausted afterward because it's just I don't know it's the way I'm wired that type of focus just wears me out. Yeah, where I could do I could do a lot. I could sit down and play guitar for five hours, and I, I feel energized afterward. I mean, I can use my brain in different ways, but that um, you know, not to put them down. As I said, it's it's pretty incredible, but it was just abundantly clear to me very quickly like this would not work for me my brain just it's just too it's not visual enough it's like there's a lot of triggers that are happening and uh, like uh, keyboard shortcuts you have to remember and i think if you really learned it and you had a brain that was good at that it would revolutionize your email yeah if you're superhuman but uh, by the end of it i was like okay and i'd already signed up for the first month and at the end uh, so you know my last question was and what do i do if i want to refund you know because i just i was exhausted and then i went and did my new calm uh you know meditation thing i did 20 minutes of that laying in the sun and then i was ready to go on with it but i really had to recoup that brain power and it was an example of that like wow i just burned up a lot of energy trying to get my brain to become malleable around a way that it doesn't intuitively like to work. Uh, so definitely some truth to that. Uh, what about, um, what's your take on methylene blue? Have you looked into that? don't have much experience with that one. Okay. Um, I, just, I just haven't been real excited about what I've read about it. Okay. Um, so it hasn't been one of those ones that's high on my list to, to go down. I mean, there's so many out there. Um, you know, I just got a guitar and I'm going to, learn how to play the guitar so i'm going to do a combination of some uh neurostimulation that can boost learning and then uh, maybe some dihexa with that to, um dihexa is really amazing with the rapidity of uh dendritic growth that occurs with it so oh, cool. hoping to to hack the uh quick learning of a guitar for those that hear this conversation and get really hyped up on peptides i mean the qualia they can just go to neurohacker is it neurohacker.com? Yeah. Yeah, neurohacker. You can get it. It's affordable. It lasts. It's amazing. It comes in huge bottles. Like, it's that's done. That's yeah, you get, the, you get the subscription. You can cancel it at any time, and it's yeah. a lot cheaper. So. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I do. Um, but there's going to be a lot of people listening to this, like, oh, my God, peptides are amazing. I've heard about them, and now they know a lot about them. But as I said, it's kind of a dark web thing. It's a little bit diff- difficult to navigate. So I've had great success with uh, peptide sciences, sciences rather, um, that site and 
everyone I've talked to said, oh, they're legit. Don't worry about it. But again, the mixing of them and all that, very complicated. So if one wanted to explore this, is this something they could do by going through uh, your clinic or other clinicians or doctors that are familiar and you know well-versed in the peptide world? We use, we use the ones that are approved right now. Um, you know, we've used the other ones after they were after they were taken off. So we, we know the, the correct dosing of all of them. Um, so I have clients that'll say, you know, I'm going to do this one way or the other. So you can either help me to do it safe or, or not. And you know, that first, do no harm, uh, criteria is there. So you, cause I've seen some people like overdo it, like somebody, was supposed to take melanotan too and after they mixed it you know they were supposed to inject like 0.15 cc's i mean 15 tenths of a cc and and they injected 1.5 cc's because they said it didn't look like it was the right amount (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like something my dumbass would do pay the price for it it was a long night for them um but yeah i mean there there is a the places where you buy the injectable peptides, they, they say right on the bio, not for human use, and they give you zero instructions. So you're left on your own yeah. to figure that out. Yeah. And it amazes me because, you know, it's just something I know how to do. But it amazes me that, you know, some of these really smart people are just at a loss for, you know, how do you get this many milligrams per injection and and mix it the right way. So, yeah, I mean, there's... There are some resources out there. There's like there's like a peptide mixing calculator. I found that eventually. Uh, yeah. That yeah, that people have been using. Uh, and it works for some of them, but you've still got to know what milligram dose you want to be getting. Yeah. In the different ones. And also, like I use that calculator and I it was, I mean, I kind of got myself deeper in the weeds until I figure I had to really spend some brain power, the same kind of brain power I tried to use in that onboarding call. That's like the shit my brain does not like to do. (laughs) So I'm looking at my syringes and I'm like, well, it has these numbers on it. Is that the numbers they're talking about on the site? I mean, it was, it was complicated, but eventually I figured out, but I think that is one of the barriers to entry of trying to do it yourself. It is. So like at your clinic, um, for example, do, do you ever work with people remotely or is this like they have to come in for full on program and like I mean, see you guys in person and all that? We'll initially start off working with some people remotely just because of COVID. Um, we traditionally did not. We always required that visit to us. With COVID, we've been a little bit more lenient on that. Um, I, we have a we have an, a mastermind program where the mastermind members have the option to have medical care through us as well and um, we'll work with them remotely but we have events here in town and they're required to come to the event be seen by their clinician uh, we have we have two pas and a nurse practitioner that um, they work in the office and they're the ones that do most of the uh, the one-on-one stuff i take very few clients myself i oversee all the the others okay got it and the last thing i want to ask you about is and we alluded to it a bit around neuroplasticity, but um, around microdosing. Mm-hmm. I've been for, I don't know, a couple of years now doing psilocybin microdosing, 100 milligrams, 200 milligrams, so a tenth of a gram or two tenths of a gram, like not a discernible, like, oh my God, I'm tripping and seeing rainbows. Uh, but definitely has absolutely helped with my mood regulation, 
general sense of well-being, creativity, focus. I'll do that uh, probably maybe three days a week or something. I'll kind of just split it out. Um, I've turned, I have someone who will remain unnamed who makes an incredible tincture that has all of the other medicinal mushrooms and some nice on there. And, <laughs> um, and people are going to DM me on Instagram and be like, can I have your contact? I'm like, guys, this shit is illegal. Like, I'm admitting I broke the law. Okay, come get me, but I'm not going to like you know, connect people. It's just not right. at this point, you know, I think that we'll move past that in terms of legislation, but for now, I'm sorry, guys, I can't give it to you. Um, but he makes these great little tinctures and I turned a friend of mine onto it, actually two friends back in LA who have never done any nootropics. They've not done. <laughs> they went straight to LSD. Yeah. They, they've not done any sort of cognitive enhancement, microdosing. Uh, they don't do any drugs or drink. They're sober guys. Um, and I said, Hey, you know, this is, technically a drug, but be careful, but it's helped me a lot. And I had two guys that try it and like the psilocybin tincture changed their life. I mean, their relationships improved, they're doing better at work. It just was a huge needle. Number. And again, for me, I notice it, but I'm doing so much stuff. It's hard to, you know, um, isolate anything. So that was the psilocybin experiment on two total normies. And that really showed me, wow, this is real. This is powerful. They didn't change anything else in their lives. And they both just had these exponential healing and growth spurts. Uh, and then personally, actually from the same guy, and I definitely can't share this one, but started doing LSD microdosing maybe a couple of years ago. And I'll do um, five micrograms or 10 micrograms, I guess, one twentieth of a hit of acid or something like that. And again, not discernible, hence microdose in terms of feeling high or anything like that, totally able to function. But on the two days or so that I do that per week, it's a guaranteed, super productive, super focused, super creative day and in the best mood ever, which is why I don't do it every day because I don't want my body to get used to it. So that's my subjective experience with those two uh, microdoses. What's your take on microdosing those two substances? Um, what does it do? What makes it work? Anything that you have to share with us? And then finally, um, as a kind of a tail on that, do you see this becoming something in the future that becomes less regulated because of the obvious benefits? Um, first of all, I just don't want to hang out with you anymore because you have <laughs> drugs and altered <laughs> states. Um, but yeah, I, I had to become a bit of an expert on some of the psychedelics because... My clients are a lot of Silicon Valley executives, entrepreneurs. I mean, it's just ubiquitous in there. And, you know, you've got to learn all about this stuff to, to understand how it's impacting health and, and what it's doing for the person, how it interacts with something you may prescribe them. Because um, most people are pretty straightforward with me. I mean, they tell me exactly what they're doing. And um, so, I, you know based on the research I've seen, based on the clients that I've seen that have been doing it, um, and, and the research is pretty clear, um, you know, you look at MDMA, you look at psilocybin, you look at LSD, there are true medical indications and there are indications in enhancement. You know, medical community is not going to be doing anything that deals with enhancement in any way. Um, you know, the, the ability to get more creative um, LSD is really amazing in, in microdoses where it's not actually altering your um, your perceptions or your um, 
your normal state in that regard, but they report a sense of well-being all over and their creativity. They're able to see things and how they, they work together. Um, I think uh, Steve Jobs was notorious for microdosing quite frequently, and he attributes the ability to come up with new ideas to that. Uh, I don't know how much of that is truth, but the studies are are pretty good right now. Um, now, what will happen with it? I think the decriminalization is probably the best route to go with this stuff um, because, you know, when it goes into the medical community, it becomes regulated. And it becomes regulated to the point that they exert their control over the way it's used. Like, like MDMA right now, I mean, there's a lot of people that are wanting to get the MDMA back available because, I mean, there's a book called Love Drugs by Earp and somebody else, uh, the bioethicists out of, um, I think, Imperial College. But it's an amazing book and it's a good kind of thesis on why MDMA should be made available to people. It's a true love drug. And, um, and we have plenty of anti-love drugs on the market. And it, it only becomes a, a drug and not a medication because it's illegal versus legal. Well, even things that are illegal, buy Ativan from the pharmacy versus you buy Ativan from a street vendor, it's a drug. Pharmacy, it's a medication. So what's the, right, what's the right. differentiation there? Yeah. Um, but, you know, these, the microdosing, is, it needs to be studied more uh, in depth. I mean, you can find studies online of it right now. Um, I think Robin Carthart Harris had uh, had a really nice study on LSD microdosing that they did. They looked at what type of creativity changes the way that people were thinking and, and how it persisted after the microdose uh, for for days, even like a week out, um, without any uh, psychological alterations. Yeah, there's one thing that I'm curious about with the LSD microdosing specifically. It's like, I just wish I had a QEG machine at home. Yeah. So whenever I do things, I'm like, God, I'm so curious. Even just in I a, do. In a, oh, really? <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Even just in a meditation, I go, oh, that was a deep one. I must have been in theta. I might even hit gamma there for a minute, you know, but I, I don't have the ability to do that. But subjectively with the LSD microdosing, something that's very unique about it is that it seems to have the ability to produce hemispheric synchronization where I can be equally left and right brain, like analytical, creative, attention to detail, super focused, but then also very creative and in a really happy kind of free mood. And there's nothing else in my experience that creates reliably that same effect. Well, psilocybin is pretty classic for the interconnectivity between them. So, so, so yeah. you, the same thing is true for psilocybin? Yeah. Because I definitely notice it more with LSD, that particular thing, where I can jump from like a very focused analytical task to a creative task, jump back and forth, like the the bridge to what's the corpus callosum, is that yeah. what it's called? Mm -hmm. Seems like something's happening there. Yeah. Because I can like boink, 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 jump back and forth much easier and Typically, that's difficult for me. Like, I have to go into a creative project, get, like, in the creative zone, and then shift stop gears. that, and then, like, take a break, shift gears, and go in and work on my taxes. You know, like, there's not typically a way to kind of, like, merge those and just dance in and out of them. It's it's uh, very pronounced. It's really cool. Yeah, the mapping on the brain of people with psilocybin, see that in the microdoses predominantly. It shows the same stuff. Yeah, I see the interconnectivity go through the roof. 
Wow. And there's, you know, one thing you might want to look at is the Muse S. Oh, yeah. I, um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's essentially an EEG headband. Right. And um, I was talking with Ariel Garden, the founder, the other day, and she was telling me they did a polysomnograph comparison, and they were they were equal. They're getting ready to publish the data on Really? It. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested to see if it can uh, really map the brainwave patterns during uh, during meditations. You know, I had a muse, and I liked it for that effect, but I ended up returning it. And nothing against muse, and this is probably just my own, you know, my own personal version. didn't. No, no, I liked it. I liked it because it was cool. Because I would try different styles of meditation. I'd be yeah. like, do my old school Vedic meditation, and I would get a certain type of result. And then I would just sort of daydream, or I might like do, you know, any number of different kind of mindfulness practices. And it was interesting to see the quantification. But I didn't like it because there was no ability, at least at that time, to turn the Bluetooth off. And so I'm putting on like a Bluetooth halo on my brain. And I've had some pretty negative experiences with acute EMF exposure. I'm super sensitive to it. And I just have interviewed enough physicists and smart people that tell me what EMF actually does to you. That it's like, I don't want any EMF too close to me. And so I stopped using it. But I was kind of bummed because I did like that effect. So, so if I got close to you, <laughs> I'm going to get a headache, man. I mean, that's the thing, though, with EMF. It's like part of it's psychosomatic because of the power of the mind, right? If you think something's hurting you, it's hurting you worse than if you were ignorant of its existence. Right. But I had a you know a situation in which I was living under these cell towers unknowingly, and I got really sick like for yeah. three years. I mean, it just wrecked my life. It was horrible. So there's a, like a quasi PTSD around it. So I'm just like, yeah. you know, this house we're remodeling, it's all hardwired. There's ethernet everywhere. Like, yeah. you know, it's just no smart technology, none of that stuff. It's just old school. Um, so when technologies come out and have, you know, great benefits, but they also have that Bluetooth thing that you can't disable. I'm kind of like, Oh, I got to wait until enough biohackers bitch about the EMF and then they'll find a way to do it. But I don't think it would work with the muse because the biofeedback is using Bluetooth. They would have to create like a wired version of it to eliminate the Bluetooth, it seems, but it was yeah. a very cool device. And so I perspective all in epigenetics and the body's always constantly adapting to stressors to be stronger. Right. You know, that's, that's what it does. I mean, we even know that people live, living in areas of, of the U.S. that have the highest background radiation uh, from the environment, they actually live longer than people in lower What? Levels. Yeah, because of hormetic effect. So <laughs> that's, they that's crazy, dude. to uh, be more anti-fragile. I mean, that's just the, the thing that happens. They did a study on... Um, people working on the docks of nuclear subs and monitored their radiation exposure over years. And they found that they had higher uh, longevity. And they didn't even publish this data at first because they were like, this is too far out there for people. That's but, wild. You know, you can look, like I said, everything has a good and a bad to it. Right. And evolutionarily, and this is the reason we die is so that we can turn over our genes and the adaptations that have occurred with the changing environments that occur. So from an epigenetic standpoint, you know, how do you create the next version of the organism that's stronger and stronger and stronger? And even now, if we, if we would take you back and put you in the environment of 12,000 years ago, the paleo environment, you couldn't really survive because all of your adaptations are designed for the current world 
where yeah. it is. It wouldn't be that you lack skills. It's just that your body wasn't adapted to. If your body's going, wait, it's not 68 degrees 24-7, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. That's so funny, the, the hermetic stress of EMF. That's interesting because I've thought about that, but my timeline is much longer. I think, okay, you know, the... Well, you're Wire- talking about high dose too under a cell tower. Yeah, that's very different. But let's just say you know wireless communications in general, just the ambient radiation that's in this room right now from the Wi-Fi and the nearby cell towers. Which, by the way, I know where they are because I mapped them and purposefully didn't move into an apartment near them. But let's just say, okay, I'm getting that hermetic stress, and so the adaptation is happening right now in in, in my genetic expression for this generation. I've always thought, well, it hasn't been around that long, so. How many generations do we have to go through until that adaptation takes place and then we're made better for it or at least tolerant to it? But what you just described is like a very quick adaptation, which is really interesting. Well, if that's the epigenetics. You know, to change genetics, that's going to take generations. The epigenetics is the gene expressions. Those are what change in the short term. But I mean, you think about it, you think, you know how much EMF is in this room altogether right now? And how many you know, football games are being played right now that are flowing through this room. How many songs are being played that are flowing through this room? How many conversations are taking place on the cell phones everywhere around us that are passing through this room? I mean, you take a look. At, I mean, this room would be packed solid with EMF. Yeah. If you looked at the full spectrum of it. Yeah. I had a, uh, a group of photos that I had at some point, I posted them on Instagram and I don't know how they generated this, but they were essentially showing different rooms inside a building and they made a visual representation of all the RF in there. And it's just like these rainbow and cascading tunnels and plumes, just filling every square inch of the space, you know, and it was a really good visual representation of what you just described. Now I took that as like, holy shit, I'm never leaving the forest again. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I think that's the thing. A lot of people, don't understand about emf is because it's invisible it's like i don't know i feel fine you know and and i thought living in that apartment i lived i mean at first i felt great you know and then over time it was like what's happening here now if we could see some sort of thermal imaging of that space it would have been you know like living next to a freaking x-ray machine or something you know hence uh when i found out i moved like hell and even ended up creating an emf course because i was like man this could happen to other people Mm. And because you only feel the symptoms of it, typically, uh, unless you know the source of it, you know, you can get jacked up. But I like where you're going with that, of just the, the epigenetic effect of the hermetic stress from just the general low-level ambient EMF. That's actually reassuring because I now have this sort of, you know, nocebo thing where I see a router across the room and I have this nervous system response. It's like, I'm in danger, I'm in danger, which is, of course, making it worse. Because now I'm in fear and anxiety around the thing instead of it just being there in the background. It's kind of a double jeopardy. Oh, I, I should have brought you to my apartment downtown when I lived there because uh, you would pull up uh, the Wi-Fi and there'd be 42. <laughs> I know. So I don't live Wi-Fi. in the city, man. So I don't <laughs> live in the city. In the house that, uh, that we're renovating right now, actually, uh, my buddy Brian Hoyer has been on the show a couple of times. He's a building biologist. And Finally, because it's the first time owning, I had him and his team come out and oh, nice. and screen the whole place. And I made the bedroom a Faraday cube. I mean, it is yeah. like the forest and then two other additional bedrooms. And then I did something interesting in there, too, uh, which totally negates your theory of the epigenetic effect. But in a room where like our TV room and the sitting room and in my and my fiance's offices, we just did a low frequency paint and grounded it all. So we grounded the floor 
grounded like you know a u shape around where the desk or the sofa would be mm-hmm. not to block the rf but just so you're not getting hit with that ac current the whole time you're sitting yeah. there trying to relax so i'm really excited it's like the house is so dialed in nice. um, yeah, yeah i mean i mean any mitigation you can do especially especially when you've had health issues or or you do have a kind of a story around it but it's just like we were talking about the, the stories around the uh, plant medicine stuff and it truly does impact the, the physiology in waves. And so, like, for me, I look at it and I'm like, okay, none of this stuff bothers me. You know, I moved from living on a 54-acre mountain home in North Carolina with, with no Wi-Fi to, uh, to that downtown Austin apartment where I had 42 signals coming in at the same time. And I didn't notice anything. You didn't feel any different? Yeah, felt nothing. Wow. Uh, but I wasn't, wasn't like... Am I feeling something? And, and yeah. because if you get into that mindset, you start, oh, okay, that's symptom, that's symptom, that's probably that. And and so you can get yourself into that mode. I'm not saying that there isn't health issues that can occur. It's just, you know, don't create health issues and attribute it to that without, you know, really paying attention to what it's coming from. Yeah, I think that's sage advice. There is a, and it goes for stuff we eat too, right? right. It's like, if you become orthorexic because you're so paranoid about eating animal products or, um, you know, whatever it is, like people go on these extreme carnivore diet, vegan diet, paleo diet, and then become so rigid and kind of controlling about it. And I know because I've done this, that then that's like its own sort of mental pathology disguising itself as like your desire to keep yourself healthy and love your body and take care of yourself. You know, there's this sort of, um, razor's edge there of just having an awareness and trying to make wise decisions to support yourself, but also realizing there is only so much you can control and the effort to control everything in your environment and become some biohacking nut. I know from experience is, is probably worse than just living your life. Right. You know, so I, one night I have some sourdough bread and it's delicious. I love bread. You know what I mean? I love cheese pizza. What better food is there? And I'll find myself eating it and going, Oh, you're, probably going to be hurting tomorrow and it's like no delete delete i'm going to actually enjoy this and i'm going to you know see this as the most nourishing healthy supportive biocompatible food that i could be eating right now and it makes life a much more enjoyable. i do that with full gluten pizza when I <laughs> yeah that's what i'm saying you know because it's like hey i know i'm not going to be perfect i'm not that disciplined and i don't really want to be so it's it's kind of finding that balance now am i going to go out and go to the grocery store and buy a bunch of bread and stock the house with it? No, but if I go out with friends, I don't want to be that one guy that's like, eh, I don't eat this, I don't eat that, no this, no that. It's just relax. See, I, I use the cockroach theory. What's that? The cockroach can survive anything because they, they just do whatever. Yeah. And so I think as long as you have some of those like pizzas and, and those things periodically in your diet, then you have that protection to eat that stuff without getting a massive reaction to it. Yeah. So the intermittent exposure is hormetic. Right. Right. I love it. Well, I think we covered everything I want to cover, Dan. <laughs> I think this so. has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for your generosity of time and spirit. Man, I think if anyone's wanting to know how to not only optimize their executive function, but just so many different things we covered, it's really valuable information. Thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you. Your commitment to research and also the commitment to your patients that's helping you further refine all of your uh, knowledge. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. One thing I got to ask you before we go, uh, who are three teachers or teachings that have influenced you and your work that you might share with us? 
Plato, Nietzsche, and Teller de Chardin. Yeah, I'm going deep. Yeah. Usually people are like, oh, my granddad. <laughs> I'm like, wow, okay, cool, cool. Well, we're going to put those in the show notes for those that are unfamiliar. I know the first two, the last one I've never heard of. Oh, you're like him. Yeah? yeah. Say it again. Telhard de Chardin. What's the basis of his uh, teaching? He was the early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s. He was a Jesuit priest that... Um, got into really looking at um, how we live and the fact that we don't need more happiness or more bliss. We need more well-being. And that's, that's, been the, that's the philosophy of Nietzsche as well as um, Plato, is that we're in this pursuit of happiness and it's the wrong pursuit. It's well-being that we really want. And it, it was really interesting to go through Deschardins uh, journey. I mean, he got the Jesuits didn't like him because he was talking crazy stuff about a noosphere of uh, consciousness of this unity consciousness that was out there and that we were heading towards greater and greater complexity in life so that we could understand more and more and gather more and more information until the point where we get to the point where the collective consciousness kind of triggers and we all uh, are able to share the knowledge together. Um, like a hundred monkey kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, cool. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, and then where can we find your website, social media, anything like that you want to share? Um, the website that covers all of our ecosystem is Apiron, A-P-E-I-R-O-N-Z-O-H, Apironzoi.com. That's Greek for limitless life. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, and, cool. Uh, and we are at Apironzoi on Instagram. All right, sweet. And then uh, I wish I would have known that when I was tagging you earlier because I didn't find your name. I tagged Neurohacker. Uh, and then for the quality of people listening, you can get that uh, at uh, neurohacker.com. And I think I have a discount code or something. I'll announce it in the intro or outro. But uh, thank you so much for coming by today, man. I appreciate it. It's fun. And it's, I'm happy that I share uh, the home of Austin with you, too. That's right. Yeah, I look forward to spending more time. For sure. Well, that was a fun episode to record. Uh, it was a whirlwind. And going back and going through some of my notes here reminded me of just how much ground was covered uh, during this conversation with Dr. Dan. What an interesting fellow. Uh, just such a knowledgeable and brilliant innovator, especially in the realm of mental and cognitive function. And I'll tell you what, man, the world's a confusing place right now. So I think brain health is probably one of the most important things that we can focus on. So I was really excited to share uh, this episode and kick the new year off with a bang. We've got another one coming this Friday. We're cranking them out, folks. It's a bonus show. It's called Mitochondriac, Groundbreaking Discoveries for Energy and Longevity with Chris Rinch. And furthermore, next Tuesday, we'll be back with Oxygen Training for Immunity, Brain Health, Anti-Aging, and High Performance Fitness with Mark Squibb. So these three are kind of a trifecta on some really cutting-edge physical health stuff. And of course, you know, this year I'm going to be delving uh, more deeply into consciousness, spirituality, mindfulness, psychology, etc. But when I find something really interesting in the physical realm, I just feel compelled to share it with you. I'm always trying to get away from kind of the biohacking space and, you know, pursue my deepest passion, which is truly expanding and exploring consciousness. 
But the fact is that if your body lacks the vitality, the energy, the clarity, uh, if you're experiencing brain fog, moodiness, poor sleep, uh, it's difficult to do the spiritual work. I know this to be true from my own experience. So I will continue to cover the physical modalities, uh, technologies, experts, etc. But just know, just so you know, as the listener, that the purpose for that is, at least for me and my intention in bringing guests that are covering the physical realm onto the show, is not to live forever. It's to live with the highest degree of energy possible while you're here so that you have the bandwidth to do the real work, the inner healing, you know, getting that trauma out of the way, the ancestral and this lifetime trauma and all of those things and just up-leveling uh, one's uh, thinking habits, feeling habits, emotional balance, mental balance, uh, nervous system balance, right? So all of the physical practices uh, aim to support one's well-being in all the realms. If you want to support your brain and you want to try my favorite brain nootropic formula, Qualia, actually it's called Qualia Mind, which uh, Dan helped formulate and we talked a bit about in this conversation, they've been kind enough to offer you a discount of 15%. So if you want to check it out, here's what you do. Go to neurohacker.com and use the code LUKE and save 15% off everything they make. That's neurohacker.com and the code's super easy. That's LUKE. And just know also, uh, for those of you that aren't super tech savvy or podcast app savvy, most of the things that are ever mentioned in these episodes that you might want to follow up on and learn more about can be easily found in the show notes on your podcast app. So the apps has, have evolved over the years, thank God. So now we can actually embed hyperlinks in there so that you can click on them uh, without having to you know, do what I used to do, which is like screenshot something, open my browser, try to spell it right, email it to myself so I could follow up with it later. I mean, it's just like, I've learned so much from podcasts, but it used to be very difficult to kind of track down the information from the um, interviews that I would listen to. So we're doing everything we can over here with our team to make it super easy for you to find the resources. And if you want a comprehensive overview of this entire episode, because I know there was a lot of stuff covered, some of it was a bit technical, you can always find the show notes uh, on my website. And in most cases, we've got a link uh, directly to the page, as we do today. The link for everything here is lukestory.com slash stickler, S-T-I-C-K-L-E-R. And there you will also find a link to the complete written transcripts. We go to great lengths to make sure that every single word spoken on every episode of The Lifestylist are transcribed for those of you that want to follow up and do some reading. I personally find listening easier because I can do it on the move, but there are times when I want to go in and like really digest some information and the transcripts are very helpful uh, when you want to do so. All right, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'm extremely grateful to be kicking off another year. I think this puts us in year seven or something. I think this June, it'll be seven years that I've been doing this show. Uh, about 8 million downloads, thanks to you. So thank you for continuing to listen and uh, sharing these episodes with a friend. If you know someone who's got brain fog and uh, has a crappy memory and lacks the ability to focus like they would want to, this might be a great episode to share with them. So thanks so much, and I'll be back next week. 